Welcome to the Wisdom School, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. Here you'll find selected readings from ancient texts, clips from the In Search of Wisdom podcast, and meditations on the art of living. To learn more and subscribe to our daily newsletter, visit perennial.substack.com. It sounds like if I hear you correctly, there's some sort of middle way between catastrophizing and maybe crystal ball gazing some sort of extraordinary <laughs> results. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly how I see it. It's like a sweet spot. You know, mm. you just want, there's a kind of a spectrum of beliefs, I guess, and you can hit that kind of range where it's kind of open-minded. It allows for the positive as well as you know, the negative, like you're kind of testing yourself almost. Let me ask you, I'm curious, you talk about in the book how our minds are these prediction machines. And it makes me wonder if there's any sort of use or or some of these people like Montaigne and Socrates were onto something of these mantras of all that I know is nothing, you know, and Montaigne was like, I'm not even sure of, of that. Just something to maybe loosen the grip on this prediction of of the future to live with a bit more wonder. We really don't know what's what's coming in the in the future at all. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I do think there are you know philosophical precedents to this. I mean, I actually think Plato's idea of like um, that we're seeing the images, the shadows in the cave rather than real life is actually kind of um, I know Anil Sefer kind of major neuroscientist, he says that does kind of preempt the idea of the brain being a prediction machine, which, you know, essentially neuroscience is showing that when it comes to sensory perception, you know, we're building these simulations, the brain is building these simulations, these predictions of what it's going to see. And then that is shaping the way we process the sensory data. So we're not actually seeing the kind of real thing, we're seeing like an approximation of the thing, which feels big. Um, kind of close to what Plato was saying. Um, In terms of these ideas of like Socrates, you know, saying, um, uh, you know, he was wise because he knew he knew nothing, you know, that interests me partly because of my first book, The Intelligence Trap, um, completely different subject, but that, you know, one of the key takeaways uh, from that was how important intellectual humility is for decision making. And I actually do see this, as being very relevant also to the expectation effect is just questioning your assumptions is so important. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of philosophy behind this um, that can be really useful to kind of understand and can inform our kind of the research on the expectation effect. How about for educators or, or leaders? How does this influence maybe their expectations that they have for for the individuals that they might be teaching? Yeah, it should be really important. Um, so there was a study in the 60s, um, which looked at what was called the Pygmalion effect. Again, it's another form of the expectation effect. And essentially, the scientists um, went into a school in Oakland, California, they um, gave the kids a test and then gave like a bit of sham feedback to the teachers at the start of the term, they just told them that some of these kids were like bloomers. Um uh, the idea being they were kind of on the cusp of experiencing great intellectual growth over the next year. And they found that actually 
priming the teachers with those beliefs would then uh, actually then did seem to cause these children to uh, to grow intellectually. They actually saw changes in their IQ scores. Um, you know, it was as, as is often the case with these older studies, it was quite a small sample size. There are questions about the statistical kind of analyses that were done. So there had been some controversy over this, but over the last two decades, you know, in the early 2000s, 2010s, it's really been replicated many times. And it especially seems there's not just positive expectations that teachers can have, but negative expectations that can be internalised by the children. It can come from these... Um, you know, non-verbal behaviours. It's not like the teacher has to be like actually actively mean or actively um, nice to their kind of favourites or mean to the the kids they don't believe are going to achieve. It could just be subtle things like whether they make eye contact with them, whether they smile when they're speaking, if they even give them enough time to actually speak. Because if a teacher cuts off a child before they've said the answer, it kind of suggests to the child that what they have to say isn't worth listening to. That becomes absorbed. It reduces the child's sense of self-efficacy. They just feel like they're not as capable. Um, It creates anxiety. All of those things can then influence the intellectual performance. So this actually looks very robust now. And it seems that exactly the same thing will be true for adults in the workplace as well. You know, if a leader um, is communicating these negative expectations, like unfair negative expectations to the um, workforce, then that's going to affect their performance. And actually, there's research then showing that you can train these leaders and teachers to change the way they behave by taking videos of them and then talking them through all the way their kind of beliefs are leaking through their nonverbal body language and um, the tone of their voice, all of these things. They can change their behaviour, and that does seem to be beneficial to the employees or the students. Do you see it as these maybe overarching views and beliefs that people have as, as very important. It, it reminds me of, of something Brene Brown was talking about in one of her books a few few books ago, but just this idea of que- uh, a question around, are people doing their very best? And she goes on and on about this particular question. There's There's no way to answer it, but she says, I'm a better person when that, when the answer is yes this view that everyone around you, people are doing their very best. And maybe you could say that from an educator standpoint, you know, are all of these people capable of performing at a high level? Yeah. This broad brush, you know, view and belief on, on human nature, I guess, if you will. Yeah, I do think that's important. And I mean, I think a lot of the research has looked at how, you know, Educators can have views not just of individual students, but actually of whole groups of uh, students. So based on their gender, based on their race, based on their socioeconomic background, you know, these implicit biases are then creating these positive or negative expectation effects. Um, I'm not saying that that's the only problem that people of colour might experience, but I do think it is a factor that needs to be addressed. Um, so yeah, I do think that's really important. And, you know, I think in some schools, you know, questionnaires have shown that the teachers just think that the, you know, if they're in maybe a deprived area, the teachers just think the whole classroom is unteachable. And then that obviously changes the way they interact with those students and the students' performance. You write in the book about how little things can make a, a difference, how 
on a in terms of uh, food or something like that the 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 how it's named the presentation all of these little things can maybe influence us i'm curious is there anything here that can help us manage our our desires or keep us off a hedonic treadmill towards things that maybe don't provide meaning in our lives Mm, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the big thing here, as you kind of hinted, was about food and food labeling and the kind of underlying beliefs we have about food. Um, so, you know, like, um, just to explain a bit about the kind of physiology of eating, you know, we, the gut and stomach does have sensors that can kind of broadly tell whether we've eaten or not, but it's a really ambiguous signal, like a messy signal. Um, so there's a strong psychological component in kind of how the brain interprets that signal and we know this from amnesic patients who because of brain damage struggle to form new memories um what the researchers found was that actually these people's um appetite barely changes or sense of satisfaction barely changes before and after a meal because they just don't have the memory of whether they've eaten and whether they should be hungry or not they don't know how to interpret those signals and actually you can give them a meal take it away bring another one and they've already forgotten they've eaten the first one and could quite happily eat the whole second one again it's not like it's like the body isn't responding in the right way to the food they've eaten um you know that's an extreme example but actually in everyday life um our psychology is shaping our appetite whether we have those kind of hunger pangs and cravings um we know for example if you work during a meal like lunch um that's interfering with the memory formation of what you've eaten. And then that can actually contribute to greater hunger later on. We know how a food is labelled can set up the expectation that it's not satisfying enough. Um, so if you eat a food that's labelled as being kind of healthy and sensible with low calories, you know, the focus is really on deprivation. That sets up the expectation that the food isn't going to satisfy you. And sure enough, you feel hungrier afterwards. And that can even change the hormonal response. So researchers have measured the hormone ghrelin. Um, that's uh, the hunger hormone. And, you know, it stimulates appetite. So the higher it is, the more hungry you feel. When you've eaten a satisfying meal, you know, had a big plate um, and you're not amnesic, when you actually remember eating that, you see that the um, ghrelin kind of rises when the meal's in front of you because, you know, you're hungry, it's telling you eat it, and then it drops rapidly. Um, so it's no longer stimulating your appetite. You don't need to find food anymore. It knows it's got enough energy. Um, but amazingly, food labels can influence that. If you drink a milkshake and it's labeled as being indulgent and decadent and delicious, and it tells you that it's got loads of calories in, you see the normal kind of um, ghrelin response that you would before and after a meal. If that shake is labeled as being like a health shake, a sensi shake, um, with very bland labeling that only focuses on its 0% fat, 0% sugars, you know, tells you it's got a low number of calories, even if it's exactly the same milkshake, you'll have a different ghrelin response. Thank you for listening to this clip from the In Search of Wisdom podcast. I hope you found something useful for daily life. Listen to new episodes of In Search of Wisdom every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. For those interested in more tools for the art of living, consider subscribing to Perennial Meditations on Substack. Until next time, be wise and be well.